I'm here with Jim Perry, producer and host of Euphemat. Jim, first, what is Euphemat? Euphemat is a show about the unknown and our relationship to it. Now, that, that part of it that is our relationship to it is very important for the show. It's essentially the entire scope and lens in which we view these paranormal or supernatural or just sheer strange experiences through. Okay, so what's so special about Euphemat? What's special about Euphemet is that we have boots on the ground. We actually go and investigate and embed with these folks who experience this anomalous activity. If they have a sighting in the middle of the woods in British Columbia, Canada, then we are going into the woods with them to see where this experience happened. We are there with the experiencers trying to really retell and capture their story in an authentic way. What kinds of topics do you explore? Euphemed explores essentially, of course, the paranormal standards, right? UFOs, ghostly encounters, psychic mediumship. But our true goal is to find those hidden stories, find those stories that are really connected to a human experience of transformation and explore topics that have not been heard before, which is everything's been done before, right? But we're challenging ourselves to go out and find those stories that have a unique situation or experience influencing them. And can you give me an example from your most recent episode? This most recent episode, I was with the, the notorious UFO attorney, Peter Gersten, and took us up onto this red rock where there was allegedly a vortex that was, were to open and he was going to jump into it. It didn't open then, but he believes it'll open uh, this year. In terms of his perspective, he's jumping into that thing. It was enthralling for us being up there and talking to him about this sort of topic and, and how, how insanely personal it gets. What you can expect from Euphemet is essentially the human perspective of these paranormal and supernatural situations. How do these experiences that most everybody have, how do they transform us? What do they say about us as individuals and as, as a culture? That's what we look to do at Euphemet. On April 18th, 2016, stay-at-home mom-turned-fitness-instructor Missy Beaver showed up at a Midlothian, Texas church to set up for a Camp Gladiator class. Less than an hour later, the first two class members would enter the church and find Missy dead. Surveillance footage was released to the public within 12 hours, but the man or woman seen has never been identified. Who killed the energetic and outgoing Missy Beavers, and why? Welcome to Insight. I'm Charlie, and with me today is Allie. How are you, Allie? I'm doing well. It's quite cold here at the moment, and we're going into school holidays soon, so we're going up to the snow for the first time. So that's a two-for-one update. How are you, Charlie? How are your kids? Are you, how pregnant are you? <laughs> I'm 0% pregnant, but this is all joking with our usual updates are about weather and kids, and so we've been joking around a little bit about that. So my kids are great. The weather is super hot. Snow sounds... I hate snow, and snow sounds amazing right now. I have never seen real snow before, so I'm really excited. I grew up in Connecticut, and I went to college in Idaho, so I've seen so much snow in my <laughs> life. I'm 
I'm good with never seeing it again. I want to first thank Jessica Bentoncourt for helping gather some sources for this. She did this months and months ago. We just finally got this case on the schedule. It's been requested a lot, and everyone knows I tend to pick the old historic cases, and this one is only two years old. So it's one that's definitely been recommended, and we wanted to do one. You know, we want to do cases that you guys want to hear. So we're going to talk about Missy Beavers, and let's go ahead and start with her. She was born Terry Leanne Strickland, but she always went by Missy. She grew up in a small town in Texas called Jacksboro. And while she was growing up there, it had like 3,500 people. So we're talking a pretty small town. She grew up as the only girl in the middle with, you know, an older brother and a younger brother. After she married Brendan Beavers in 1998, she went back to school to get her teaching certificate with a focus on special education. She had already previously earned a Bachelor of Science degree, but... She was just working jobs after college. She wasn't really on a career path, but she found what she loved in teaching kids with special needs, and it really fit her outgoing and caring personality. She only taught for a couple of years, though. In 2001, their first daughter was born, and she became a stay-at-home mom. Then another daughter two years later, and then the family was complete with a third daughter four years after that. During her time as a stay-at-home mom, Missy got really into fitness. She got into great shape. She got very strong. Then her passion for teaching and helping people combined with her love of fitness, and she became a very popular fitness instructor as a camp gladiator trainer. She held classes at Creekside Church on Highway 287 in Midlothian. The day before her death, she had gotten back in town from a camp gladiator weekend event in Austin, Texas. At 45 years old, with three kids who were 15, 13, and 8, she was in the best shape of her life. The way Camp Gladiator businesses work is not dissimilar to how direct sales companies work. People interested in starting a Camp Gladiator business, they apply to be trainers using the Camp Gladiator methods and business structure. They hold classes in their areas at times and locations that they arrange by themselves. The trainer is responsible for building their independent business. They get paid based on how many people take their specific classes and this sale component to the business led Missy to having a very public social media presence. She posted a lot of information about the program, the benefits, and also when and where her classes were going to be so that more people could sign up. Basically, she was advertising her business online, just like any other small business owner. The difference this makes to the case and why this matters. Missy often taught early morning classes, generally starting around 5am, and she would show up alone about 40 or 45 minutes before this to set up for the class. Creekside Church, where she often held these classes, it's on a highway that gets a fair amount of traffic past it, but there aren't other buildings around. Now, there is one building directly across the highway, but according to Google Maps, it says it's a weddings or events venue, So obviously it's not something that would be open before sunrise, and that's when Missy would set up for her early morning classes. It's believed by authorities that this was a targeted attack against Missy, so you would want to then look at who knew her schedule and knew she'd be there at that time and likely alone. 
Now, unfortunately, since her schedule was public, everyone knew what her schedule was, so it doesn't exactly narrow things down. So let's get to what actually happened. On April 17th, 2016, Missy's husband, Brendan, flew to Biloxi for a fishing trip. The weather was rainy and rain was forecast for the next day. So Missy posted on Facebook a graphic that said, if it's raining, we're still training. She was going to move the Camp Gladiator class from the parking lot where they usually had it to the inside of the church if the weather was bad. A little before 9.30 that night, she posted she was going to bed since she had to be up at 3.30 the next morning. In a press conference a couple of days later, her husband said he talked to her when he arrived in Biloxi, the usual letting her know he got in safely. And then he talked to her again around 9.30 when he called to say goodnight, and he said she was already half asleep when he called. Creekside Church, where Missy was holding her class on April 18, it has interior motion-activated surveillance cameras, so the timeline was set by what was seen on those. I've also read they had external cameras, but not all of the cameras worked or were on at that time. At 3.50am, a person dressed in what was made to look like police tactical gear broke into the church through the kitchen cafe area. Because of what they were wearing, it's not clear what they looked like, whether they were female or male, or you can really tell as their approximate height between 5'2 and 5'7. The only identifying feature is how they walked. They walked with an injured right foot or leg. I've also seen it as an injured lower back. But they walked with a limp and they leant against the wall at times as if they were trying to take weight off their injury. This person was not seen entering the building, but rather coming out of one of the rooms adjoining the kitchen. The kitchen door that led out to the parking lot showed the signs of a break-in, so it's a solid deduction that this was the point of entry. The person is seen on the camera going through the building and opening unlocked doors and trying to pry open locked doors. And this tactical gear looks pieced together. It says police on the back, but for all we know, this is a costume. It had a helmet that had a headlamp on and the face is partially covered. You really can only see the eyes. The coverage of this person makes it unclear if they are male or female, and that's one of the most debated pieces of information in this case. We are going to just try to use the pronoun they for this person. While we will share our opinions of the gender of the person, the truth is we don't know, and we do want to stay open-minded about it. The person is also carrying what looks like a hammer and then something else in their other hand. The police released some of the surveillance footage within 12 hours of finding Missy, because of that very distinct gate that Allie had mentioned, they were hoping someone watching it would recognize that way of walking. And we do have speculation on why they walked that way. Did they have an injury, possibly a prosthetic leg on the right side? I saw one theory that maybe they were just not wearing shoes that fit very well so that if they left any footprints, they wouldn't match their actual shoe size. It was significant enough of an imbalanced way of walking that they appeared to steady themselves using the wall at various times. It's interesting because in the footage, the attacker doesn't seem to be in any hurry. They seem to be really taking their time. They're opening and closing doors and looking around. 
I think maybe to make it look like a robbery when it really was more of a targeted attack. Because even when they pry open these doors, they never really go into the rooms. They would just casually move on to the next door. They don't seem nervous or on guard that they might get caught. It's all very relaxed and chilling, to be honest, given what's to come. I noticed the same exact thing. They walked just so casually through. If the door was unlocked, they would just open it. They wouldn't even like pry it open. And they barely like made a cursory look into most of the rooms. I thought maybe they were trying to vandalize the church and Missy surprised them. But like I said, they didn't damage any of the doors that had been unlocked. They just opened those. So if this goal was to destroy the church, they would have just been busting things out willy-nilly and they weren't. What I think is happening is that they're staging the scene so that when Missy does get there, she will walk in. She sees this person who is dressed as a police officer That person can say, there was a break-in, I'm here to check out the place, and catch her off guard. That would make a lot of sense because if she does go in, sees the damage, she would trust the person in police gear. She'd be less on guard, more willing to go with them, and be more compliant. So let's get to when Missy got there. She pulled into the church parking lot at 4.16 a.m. And then at 4.20, she's seen entering the church from the covered drive area. So let's just cover the layout of the church for a second. The front of the church faces the highway, and that's facing west. The south end of the church is where Missy came in, and it's the main entrance to the church. The parking lot wraps all the way around the church, and there are doors in the back. So you would kind of think the person breaking in would want to come in through that back to avoid being seen entirely, but they actually went through that kitchen entrance, which was on the complete opposite side from where Missy went in. So someone could have seen them if they were driving by the highway. So this makes me assume that their goal was to avoid being seen specifically by Missy by getting in on the complete other side of the building from where she always entered. Footage of Missy has not been released, but it's been described as her entering and walking in the direction of where the person in the tactical gear was last seen heading. It has been said that the attack itself was not on camera, but what are the odds Missy walked directly to where that person was? My guess is that this person knew where Missy held her indoor classes and was waiting there for her. Also, after Missy was seen walking in the direction of this person, it has been said neither of them appear on surveillance again. Now, I am surprised that there isn't footage of the actual attack. Maybe there is and the authorities are keeping that to themselves. Or maybe the attacker knew where to go so they wouldn't be picked up on any surveillance footage. It's likely the person exited the way they came, though that kitchen door that doesn't sound like it was covered by a camera. Missy's truck was found by the door she entered in and only some of the equipment Missy normally took into class had been unloaded. It makes me wonder if she got out of the truck and then went in to unlock the building and put the lights on before hauling all the equipment inside. There is one piece here that does give me some pause. One of the class members, sometimes called campers, they arrived early. According to the official timeline released by the Mithlothian police, it was 4.35am. But we have to assume they didn't see anything alarming because they sat in their car until 5am and that's when the class was supposed to start. 
Either the attack happened and the attacker left in about 15 minutes before the person pulled in or the person was distracted. I know that when I get somewhere early, I don't stare at the window. I don't pay attention to what's going on around me. I'm either going through Facebook on my phone or reading a book or watching YouTube, something to keep me occupied. So the attacker could have slipped out unnoticed. And it's also possible the person slipped out as the class members entered the building around 5 a.m. If these class members went in the main entrance like Missy did and the attacker went out through the side or even the back, they may never have seen a person or a vehicle. It is quite possible that, I mean, I assume there's new people starting the class all the time. This person could have easily got changed, mixed in with the people in the class I'm sure there would have been a lot of cars there. It would have been easy for them to be unnoticed. Yeah, and these two class members that arrived first entered at 5 a.m., and dispatch received two 911 calls from the church from those members reporting that Missy was found and that she was unresponsive. There are some questions online about why both people called 911, and I think it is kind of odd. If they were both there at the same time, that they would both call 911 instead of just having one of them do it, but my guess is they saw this brutal crime and they hauled out of the building. You know, they don't know if the attacker's still there. And in leaving the building, they both just called. They weren't necessarily walking out together. They may have been running out. And we're going to take a quick break right here for a word from a sponsor. And then when we get back, we will talk about the investigation into Missy's murder. The Fab Fit Fun Summer Editor's Box is now available. They deliver four times a year for just $49.99 a box. But the editor's box, this is available for purchase in between the seasonal boxes. They'll have newly discovered items, but also favorites from past boxes. In every box, you're going to get an Umikim train case in either periwinkle or navy, uh, a Hava mineral hand cream, a sponge gel papaya yuzu boxed flower body wash infused buffer. And then there are some other things that'll be in some of the boxes, like an Ish lip statement palette or a Dr. Brand Pores No More Luminizer Primer. When I get my FabFitFun box, I have to hold on to it because I have to wait for my daughter to be there. She wants to open it with me. And then the negotiations begin. It's so fun to get these beauty products. They're full size, so you're not getting samples. The thing that impresses me the most about my box is I always look at it, and I can't believe I spent just $49.99 on $200 worth of product at least. So sign up for FabFitFun today and get your summer editor's box. Use my code INSIGHT, one word, to get $10 off your first box. Go to FabFitFun.com to sign up and start getting the box for a life well-lived. Use promo code INSIGHT to get $10 off your first box. That's over $200 for only $39.99. Go to FabFitFun.com. Use my code INSIGHT to get $10 off your first FabFitFun box. Authorities arrived in under 10 minutes, but it was already too late. Missy was dead. She was found surrounded by broken glass and there were signs of a struggle. One of the campers called Brendan around 5.30 and said that there was an accident with Missy. He was in Mississippi at the time, so he called his mother, who then called his sister. The girls had been left home sleeping that morning, not usual for their ages, and he wanted someone to go over there to be with them and make sure they were okay. 
Brendan told his mother that Missy was in a car accident, which may have been his interpretation of what the camper had told him. Brendan then immediately drove home, which would have been about an eight-hour drive. At some point in this, the police did get in touch with him and let him know more about what happened and that it wasn't an accident, but rather an attack. The autopsy on Missy was done the next day, but the authorities withheld the results. However, in a search warrant to Missy's phone, it says she had multiple puncture wounds to her head and chest, which would be consistent with the tool seen in the attacker's hands on the footage. There is a lot of speculation that there was a gun involved as well, because in a justification for denying the public records requests had to do with something to do with the serial number of the gun. It makes you wonder if the gun was left at the scene and also why they would want to withhold this information. And as for these search warrants, a few have been made public, at least in part. One search warrant was for cell phone data for the towers near the church for the two hours before Missy was found. Another was to search her truck. There was a warrant for the cell records of very specific people. Missy, obviously, also her husband. There was another Camp Gladiator trainer and his wife. A couple who were family friends of the Beavers were on the list, and also Missy's father-in-law and his wife, which would be Brendan's stepmother. And as we know, police can't just go pulling people's records without cause. In the probable cause affidavit for getting the cell phone information, police referred to these as, quote, target numbers and said that previous evidence taken from Missy and Brendan's electronic devices, these numbers were targeted because of these previous communications. And those previous communications showed that there was financial stress and marital stress, and that some of these messages showed intimate or personal relationships outside of the marriage. But others were needed because there was multiple tips from the public of someone who was matching the shape and the gait of the perpetrator. And the person matching the person in the video, that was Brendan's father, Randy. Because of the media attention on this case, a lot of people saw Randy on the news walking like the person in the video. To make things even worse for Randy, he brought a shirt with blood on it to a dry cleaner's four days after the murder. He said that the blood was from a relative's dog getting into a fight, that he picked up the smaller dog to bring it to the vet and he got the dog's blood on him. This led to a warrant for the shirt, but the testing did show it was animal blood. Randy was in California at the time and this was confirmed through his cell phone records and those of his wife. It looked like it would have been impossible for him to have been the person on the video. There was also a search warrant to LinkedIn. The probable cause of this is two parts. While Missy was at the Camp Gladiator event in Austin, she showed a friend a message she got from someone she didn't know on LinkedIn. The friend didn't recognise the name and didn't recall it when she told the police about it. But both women felt the message was creepy. And the second reason they wanted to look at LinkedIn was that someone who was a person of interest told investigators that he talked to Missy on LinkedIn and admitted that the messages turned, quote, flirtatious and familiar. And then on the probable cause affidavit for a warrant for Brendan's Facebook, 
we see a little more information as to why certain numbers were targeted to have their records pulled. It says that Brendan told officers that Missy was having an affair with one of the men whose cell phone records were pulled. Then police found on their own that Missy had a conversation with another man and had plans to meet up with him. And in a different search warrant, they named him as someone she was possibly having an affair with. Police believed that Missy was in contact with her killer prior to her death. So these cell phone records and social media records were a big, big, big part of this early investigation. During a May 20th press conference, so we're talking just about a month after the murder, the police announced that Brendan and his father have strong alibis and they did not name any suspects at that press conference. Then it was announced there was additional surveillance footage, not at the church, but at a parking lot of a store down the highway. Now, the church is on the northbound side of the highway, and this store is on the southbound side, about a half a mile away. But it's flat, so you can see one building from the other, or at least Google Maps Street View makes it seem that way. The store is called SWFA, which is a hunting and camping store. From what I can tell, they focus a lot on guns, so they have several cameras facing their parking lot for security purposes. At 1.58am on April 18th, a Nissan Ultima pulled into the parking lot of the gun store. It came from the direction of the church, but that's to be expected. This was a divided highway without a turn lane in front of the store, so you could only access the store's parking lot coming from the direction of the church. But immediately on entering the parking lot, the car's headlights are turned off. The car then drives around the building, occasionally turning the headlights on and off and then braking suddenly a few times. Then the car pulls into a parking space right under a street lamp and sits there for about three minutes. It then leaves the parking lot at 2.04am. The car turns away from the church when leaving, but again, this is a divided highway. To get to the church from the gun store, you have to drive south a little ways before taking a U-turn to head back north. In these six minutes, the license plate of the car is never clear in any of the footage, which seems so unfortunate because the cameras were everywhere that they couldn't get this in at least one frame. And some of those cameras were pretty high def, but it was raining and it was dark. I mean, you'd hope there'd be that one great shot, but there wasn't. Police have asked the driver to come forward so that they could be ruled out, but they haven't done so. There are a few theories on the car. One is that it's entirely unrelated to Missy's death. It was someone coming down the highway in the rain, and they pulled into the parking lot to check their GPS, possibly make a phone call. For the headlights and the braking, maybe there was some car issue they were worried about and they were just checking it in the parking lot. I mean, that seems kind of like a stretch, but we can't rule it out. In this scenario, the driver didn't come forward because possibly they were just passing through, didn't even know authorities were looking for them. Another possibility is that the car is entirely unrelated, but the person hasn't come forward because of some other illegal happening. They waited three minutes in a parking spot before leaving. Perhaps they were waiting on a drug deal, though parking under the light seems kind of odd if you're trying to go unseen. 
I did read that the card does have a bumper sticker, but no one could work out what the bumper sticker says or what it's a sticker of, so I'm not sure how much that helps in identifying the vehicle either. I watched an analysis of the vehicle, of the footage, and it seems like you can see that round bumper sticker in some, but not in others. So some people think it may have just been a trick of the light or a reflection, so it may not even exist. So again, another wild card in here. But if this is related to Missy's murder, it's possible this was a test. The intruder may not have known if the church had an alarm system or not. There is some damage to the outside of the building that doesn't appear to serve a purpose. There were windows broken that weren't reasonable ways to enter the church, particularly for someone in SWAT gear. It's possible someone broke the windows to test for an alarm, and when they didn't hear one, they drove to the gun store parking lot to wait and see if the police did arrive in the event there was a silent alarm. When the police did not show up, they knew that they could break into the building without worrying about an alarm. I have a hard time thinking this car is not somehow connected, and I think the waiting and checking for a silent alarm sounds very reasonable to me. When we start looking at the question of why, there is always the possibility that Missy was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. This person really was there to vandalize or to rob the church, and Missy interrupted them. Another theory is that the person had initially intended on robbing the gun store, but backed out and tried to rob the church instead. But I don't know how you go from robbing a gun store to a church. Most churches would have deposited their Sunday collection plate at the bank during the after-hours deposit drop, but even if a person did know this, they didn't look like they were there to rob anything. And I imagine a person robbing a gun store would be after something completely different to someone wanting to steal money from a church. Exactly. Several tips came in naming a man called Bobby Wayne Henry. Henry was seen at Missy's memorial service, and he walked with a limp, so multiple people noticed this. But he had a reason to be there. He works church security, and he had been hired to be security that day. And working security makes sense because he used to be a police officer. But not only that, he worked in the tactical unit, so he would possibly have tactical gear at home. There was also a tip that came in from someone driving by the church around 4.30 the morning of the murder, so pretty much right when we would expect the attacker to be leaving. A small SUV was seen pulling out of the church parking lot. It was dark, so the person couldn't get an exact color except to say it was a dark-colored SUV. And Henry drove a dark brown Honda CRV. It's also stated that he worked or possibly attended the same church Missy did. Henry drove the right vehicle, owned tactical clothing, including a vest and helmet, though he did say the vest didn't fit him anymore. Even he admitted to police in an interview that he matches the description of the person on the surveillance. A search warrant was issued for his home in December of 2016. Like other information we have, this information is from the probable cause affidavit for the search warrant. Investigators had sent footage of Henry walking along with that of other persons of interest with limps. They sent it to a forensic podiatrist and he said he could not include or exclude Henry based on what he had seen. 
Henry's alibi was much like anyone else's alibi for three or four or even five o'clock in the morning. He was at home. He and his wife had a new baby, so he remembered getting up for the 3am feed for the baby. Taken from his home were a number of electronic devices and they were sent to the FBI to be searched. In March, the FBI told the local police that they did find something on Henry's computer, but it wasn't related to Missy's case. It was child pornography. He was arrested on those charges, but in my understanding, he never went to trial. There has not been anything to definitively link Henry to Missy's death, and what people point to remains entirely circumstantial. We're going to talk about more leads that came in, but also get in a little bit about the web sleuthing and the web interest in this case after one last word from a sponsor. I have to tell you guys about this great new podcast. It's a fictional show about murder. It involves twins. It involves cults. It involves a Florida weatherman. If this interests you, if you're a fan of true crime and comedy, you're going to love this show. And it is called This Sounds Serious. This Sounds Serious is hilarious. It pokes fun at the mystery and the crime categories in a unique way. It delivers both on the laughs and the narrative. This is going to become your go-to podcast. Stay tuned to the end of this episode so you can hear a promo, but This Sounds Serious is out now, so go subscribe wherever you find podcasts. Henry wasn't the only tip that came in. 1,300 tips came in, but the majority of them weren't tips as in, I have information. A lot of them were, I have a theory, or I read about this case online, and I think... So after weeding through the information from the speculation, investigators had dozens of specific people to follow up on. The assistant chief of police for Midlothian said, none of these people became more than a person they had a tip on. No one became a suspect. With these people, they checked their connection to Missy, their connection possibly to the church, their alibi, and obviously compared them to the person in SWAT gear from the church cameras. They ran background checks on them. They did a lot of interviews. And none of this led to one suspect over another. As the case stands right now, police have said they haven't entirely ruled out anyone. I mean, the husband did it is pretty much a trope at this point. And I even saw someone walking around CrimeCon with a shirt that said that. There is some truth to this idea, though. 55% of murdered women in America were the victims of intimate partner violence or related violence, meaning it was someone who was like their partner's friend or possibly a family member that murdered them. Along these lines, Brendan and or his family needed to be considered. Due to their alibis, this would have had to be a murder-for-hire situation and the person in the church was a hired hitman. If this is the case, the Hyde hitman went to a lot of trouble for something he could have probably done a lot more easier. This was a brutal and up-close attack with someone who was quite strong in a place where any of her students could have seen her truck out front and decided to come in early to help her set up. It seemed like an unnecessary risk for someone who wasn't killing out of anger or passion or possibly just because they enjoyed killing. 
A lot of the suspicion on Brendan was from him not acting right with the media to start. Many thought he seemed cold and unemotional when he talked to the media immediately afterwards. But I've seen a variety of interviews with him, and he seems all over the place emotionally. Sometimes he's holding it together, and sometimes he's falling apart. But as far as hiring someone, I don't know how he would have paid for it. The family was having financial issues, so it's not like he had the money. And I am sure the police looked into his bank records and his family's bank records. And I'm not saying it never happens, but he didn't benefit out of Missy being murdered or or dying. I know there is cases where the other person doesn't benefit, but... In him hiring someone to kill her, he wasn't going to benefit financially. This is purely my own opinion, and I know we'll get to it later, but I think she was killed by someone who knew her, or at least thought they knew her, and it's based purely on the weapon. I think a professional hitman would have used a gun or maybe a knife, but a hammer to me seems more like a crime of passion. It seems more intimate because you have to get up close. I'm not saying that it was her husband or a relative or anything like that. It could have just been someone obsessed with her. Maybe she flirted with him. Maybe she was just nice to him and he took it as something more. Maybe it was a partner of someone who was interested in Missy. Law enforcement has said that the family is not the focus of the investigation, though, but they haven't entirely ruled anyone out. But this idea that Missy was targeted also leads to the possibility it was a man she was having an affair with or the man's wife. Investigators described some parts of the video showing that the person in SWAT gear had a feminine way of walking, which is why they cannot say for sure that it was a man. Some online have even speculated that perhaps there were two people involved, but only one was ever on camera at any given point in time. Perhaps one woman and one man, and that would account for the small differences between shots. But many think all these perceptions are just camera angle and lighting, like with the car and the bumper sticker, and that it was surely the same person throughout. It would have been very smart on their part to make sure they weren't on camera at any given time. I think that would take a big awareness of where the security cameras were. I think that's very unlikely. I think so, too, especially since we're not talking about just one camera they had to avoid being seen on. They had to make sure they were only seen at certain cameras and enough time for one person to have made it there. It just doesn't seem like it would fit. It would be a a big, big coincidence if that did happen. The men who were named in the search warrants have become targets for online sleuths to the point that their addresses were posted online and people started pointing out things like how the wife of one of these men had a broken foot and maybe she was limping at the time. Then someone drove by one of these men's houses and stole his trash. So you'll notice we're not using the names of the men Missy was possibly having affairs with. And that's in large part because this has become such a nightmare for those families who probably didn't have anything to do with this. I mean, maybe one did, but that doesn't mean the other one deserves to be stalked by strangers. Missy also knew various law enforcement officers, so some people think perhaps the SWAT gear wasn't fake and a police officer was behind this. There's even a change.org petition to try to get the federal authorities more involved in this case in the event it was a local police officer. Of course, this could very well be a stalking case. 
Missy was a public person. She worked in a business where she was face-to-face with the public regularly. She had an energetic and engaging personality. She was public about her schedule on social media as she built her Camp Gladiator business. And then we have that creepy LinkedIn message that she showed to a friend. Being a woman on the internet does lead sometimes often to creepy and weird private messages. Most women are experts hitting that block button. This could have been someone who sent her a creepy message or someone who was just watching her from afar. I feel like if it was someone who stalked her, it's someone who likely came to some of her classes at the church. They knew when to get there, where Missy would be heading after entering, when she would arrive, and that they wouldn't get interrupted by an early arriving camper. I definitely think whoever it was had been to her classes, whether it's someone she knew, possibly another trainer who had been to her classes, a student, maybe someone close to her, a friend or a family member who had come to the classes to support her. I think it is someone who staked this out to some degree. I think that given what she did and the kind of person she was, it is quite a possible scenario that she could have flirted with the wrong person or been just nice to the wrong person or turned down the advances of the wrong person. As we have said throughout this episode, her routine was public and it would have been a regular thing where she was and when she had to be places because that was her job. Stalking her wouldn't have been that difficult. It's scary if that is the case because I'm not sure how you can protect yourself from that. She can be on alert for anything unusual, but it could have been likely nothing substantial happening until the day she was murdered. And she would have had to not go into this business for herself. She would have had to not engage in working to avoid a stalker in this situation. She wasn't doing anything a man who runs a personal training business wouldn't be doing. You know, she was getting out there, she was meeting people, she was posting her schedule, she was recruiting people to come to her classes. That's what anyone in this position would do. This is what anyone who sells Mary Kay has to do. This is what people building a business do. And this idea that she was in danger just by living her life, it makes you realize how dangerous the world can be, especially for a woman. And for those reasons, I think this is really one of the most chilling crimes we have covered because it really bothers me, mainly because we do live a lot of our lives on social media. I know for us, we post where we're going for meetups and what we're doing and things we do with our children. I think a lot of our listeners have received unwanted advances on social media and we may ignore or block the person. But the way we do use social media to check in places and share so much about what we're doing and where we're going, it's really easy for someone with the wrong intentions to take advantage of that. And honestly, that scares me. Missy could be any one of us. That's absolutely true. And I think one of the interesting things with this case is it got recommended a lot. I didn't know a whole lot about it, except it was a fitness instructor. I actually thought she was teaching yoga. I don't know why I got that in my head. At a church. Like I had a very specific idea. I didn't even have the details. 
But so many people were like, you need to cover this. And then Jessica wanted to do the research on it. And so I said, sure, let's go ahead and do this one. And I see how many people are getting really wrapped up in this case online, which we'll get into some more of the web sleuthing in a minute. And I realized why. I mean, Missy really could have been any of us. She was just living her life. She was taking care of her kids. She was building a business. She was doing all these things. She was having marital problems. I mean, who doesn't go through those ups and downs? And it just seems like out of nowhere, this person just attacked her. And without knowing who it was and why, I mean, it gives me a lot of pause. As we said, there have been a lot of web sleuthing on this case. It has led to hundreds and hundreds of tips coming into police, and some of them were speculation, not information. While I truly believe most of the people who have been working on this case as armchair detectives have been doing good work and respecting boundaries, but some have taken it too far. A woman named April attended four Camp Gladiator classes that Missy taught, having won some kind of raffle with her. She took a picture with the class and she shared it online. She gave an interview to the Dallas Observer in January of 2017 and said that after the photograph was seen, along with a social media post about her having injured her foot, web sleuths started digging into her past, which, I mean, I can see that happening. But then they started airing her dirty laundry online, like past convictions, things like that. Then someone found out she had a Nissan Altima, the same car seen in the gun store footage. People actually drove by her house and even her son's preschool to take pictures of the car, which wasn't even hers. It turned out it was her mother's. As a parent, the thought that someone would be driving by my little guy's preschool to take pictures bothers me so deeply. And I think the person who did it could probably see my point of view in most circumstances. But they're so focused on solving this case that I think they've lost a lot of perspective here. At some point in this, April called the police to find out what she could do about it. And the police actually brought her into the station to interview her because of all the calls they got on her. They cleared her from suspicion, but her name still gets brought up online by those who only heard the suspicion, but not that she was cleared. Another man named Lyle was thrown out there as a suspect and discussed and sleuthed, even though he had been cleared months before by the police. I am so torn on the web sleuthing because I am such, I feel like I'm such a strong supporter of it in most cases. And then I see this one, and because of people's social media postings again, you know, this guy's wife has a broken foot, so now they're going to drive by his house and steal his garbage. This woman posted a picture from a class that she took like four classes with Missy, and she also happened to later have an injured foot, and they're driving by her kid's preschool. I think we can say that when you're taking it from the internet and what you can do on the internet, and you're actually going out in real life and acting as a private investigator, then you're crossing a line unless you actually are a private investigator. I can only echo what you just said. Look, I'm sure investigators have this love-hate relationship with online sleuths. I know that when we do our research for our podcasts, it is hard sometimes to separate the speculation from the fact, and that would have a negative effect on an investigation. 
I think that people do forget the responsibility and the influence they can have when they post on these online forums. But the online sleuths have done good work in this case as well. They have the time and the energy to look at and enhance these videos. They can also get the case out there so the information just doesn't stay in the Dallas Metroplex or just Texas, but it goes worldwide. It gets that surveillance video in front of more eyes. It's just when a few people cross those boundaries and either slander people or attempt to be real-life investigators that things do start to become destructive. I really feel in this case that the person who murdered Missy knew her. Whether she was fully aware of them, I don't know. I do believe this could be a case of a stalker who followed this through to the end. I think it's possible that they found out she was having a relationship with someone else or that she and her husband were rebuilding their marriage because her husband did say something about Missy had started within the last year texting him more, I love yous during the day, things like that. Or this was just someone who Missy thought was a friend who thought more about their relationship. I, I mean, that's I just feel like this was such a personal killing. I think that given, after going through all this information, I think that's where I'm heading as well, that it was someone who became obsessed with her and maybe thought they had a bigger relationship than what they had or was jealous of her other affairs or her husband and just took it too far. Missy Beavers left behind a husband, three beautiful daughters, along with friends, family members, and her entire fitness community. In April of this year, 2018, one of Missy's daughters auctioned a pig she had raised at a livestock auction to raise money for the investigation into Missy's death. The winning bid was $15,000, which obviously is much more than a pig usually goes for. The Midlothian police said that they were very proud of her efforts. Initially, they said they'd try to figure out how to allocate the funds, but in the end, they turned down the money, and it was donated to a charity for special needs children in Missy's memory. There is a $50,000 reward in this case. Anyone with information in the case is asked to call the Midlothian police at 972-775-3333, or Ellis County Crime Stoppers, where you can remain anonymous at 972-937-7297. These numbers will be in the show notes. Thank you for listening. You can find us on Facebook at Insight Podcast, Twitter at Insightful Pod, Instagram at Insight Pod, or email us at insightfulpod at gmail.com. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash insightpod. And a special thank you to Chesgrave Music for our new custom theme. I want you to meet Daniel Bronstadt. Hello! Over here! He's a little strange. Some nights I wake up and I think... It would be amazing to go on a flamingo hunt. He lives in a rundown mansion. Originally, this was meant to be a bathroom, but I've converted it into my bedroom. I just feel more comfortable sleeping in small spaces, and so I actually sleep in this tub. And he also may have killed his twin brother, Chuck. 911, what's your emergency? Uh, My brother, I I think he's dead. Okay, please calm down, sir. What happened? This Sounds Serious is a new fictional true crime podcast from CastBox. If you like some humor with your true crime, then this is the show for you. It's packed with cults, 
plot twists, a weatherman, a boy band, and, of course, an unsolved murder. Yeah, he's dead. He's face down in his bed, and I'm, I'm poking him pretty hard here, and uh, it would be very unlike him to not respond to this kind of poking. Download This Sounds Serious wherever you get your podcasts.